0: this podcast details true crime cases it contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence it is not intended for children listener discretion is advised thank you for joining me for today's episode of what's upon a crime there are some true crime cases that hold a special fascination for people You'll know these cases by the coverage they received at the time they occurred, or by the fact that they're still featured on true crime shows and covered with renewed interest on the anniversaries of these events. One story that was in the news for years as it was unfolding was known as the Unabomber case. Between 1978 and 1995, an unknown person sent homemade bombs to universities, airlines, and office buildings. Ultimately, three people were killed as a result the FBI would attach the name Unabomb to their unsub, which was an abbreviation for University and Airline Bomber. The longest and most expensive investigation in the Bureau's history had been conducted by the time the Unabomber was finally identified as Theodore Ted Kaczynski in 1996 and brought to justice. Many books, movies, and television shows have covered the crimes of Ted Kaczynski, his life story, the investigation, trial, and aftermath, but a new book tells this story from a completely different angle. I'm pleased to bring you a conversation with author Jamie Gehring. The book is titled Madman in the Woods Life Next Door to the Unabomber. Well, here now is my conversation with Jamie. I'd like to welcome my guest to talk about this case from an angle that you probably never heard before. Jamie Gehring is the author of the new book, Madman in the Woods, Life Next Door to the Unabomber. So the title somewhat gives away the angle we're going to be talking about today. Yes, she grew up a stone's throw from the now infamous Unabomber cabin where Ted Kaczynski lived for a number of years and where he planned and built some of the bombs he'd use to ultimately kill three people and seriously injure over 20 but Jamie also did extensive research about Kaczynski and his crimes, including poring over case files, corresponding with FBI agents who'd worked on the case, and even learning about how her own father helped in the capture of the Unabomber. So I want to give Jamie the floor now because I have so many questions I want to ask her. So first of all, welcome, Jamie.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So this
0: book, I'm almost all the way through. I kind of had to flip to the end because there's a letter at the end (laughs) that I wanted to find out about. Um, And I knew it was in there, but I'm like, I know I'm getting to it, but I'm not quite there. But we'll talk about that towards the end here of of our discussion. It's really a great book. Uh, I just want to say that, first of all. Like, I really like the way that you put the story together. Um, I think it really draws you in it's just not exclusively about the Unabomber, because I know some people are saying, oh, well, yeah, i have read about that case or I've seen something about it. And so I kind of know. But because you have such a personal connection to it and the way that you weave the story together with your own time living in Lincoln, Montana and and everything that happened there um, around you, things, of course, that you didn't know about at the time, things that you found out about later on. But also weaving all that together really, I think, makes it very compelling. And like I said at the beginning, gives a different angle uh, totally to the to what we think we know, I guess, about Ted Kaczynski. And of course, you know, as I'm saying this, obviously you have a real personal connection to this case. But my first question was, what spurred you to really dive into the details and then write a book about this case, about Ted Kaczynski and the, the Unabomber case? Was there like one thing in your life that moved you to then spend a good portion of your time really learning um, in detail about this case.
1: It was really a combination of things in my life. And I was 16 when Ted Kaczynski was arrested. And since his arrest, I had really always wanted to write this story and to tell our family's place in it. And then of course, my father's involvement in the investigation. And he actually, um, my father had passed away in 2012 and that kind of pushed me a little bit further to finally, to to finally write the book. Um, And then at the time too, I had started outlining, I had started writing and I was approached by a production company to participate in the Netflix documentary Unabomber in His Own Words. And as I was telling my stories of childhood and our interactions, and kind of this different lens that I had seen this killer through as a child, the producers just kept telling you have to finish this book, you have to tell this story. It's so incredible, this perspective. So yeah, there were definitely a combination of things that kind of pushed me to, to finally write it.
0: But it was something then you had been thinking about for a while. I I guess I'm, I'm just curious about, there's a lot that went into researching this. So was it at first just for you to kind of like understand it like for yourself or was there things that you felt you really needed to document about the case that you knew?
1: I think, again, that was also a combination. It was part of me wanting to really tell The story of my father's involvement in the case. And even when I sat down to write the book, I didn't know the full extent of of those stories until I sat down with FBI agent Max Knoll, who was the arresting officer on the case, who really was able to share with me really how much my dad had done and what he meant to the investigation and that was really important for me especially with my dad being gone to honor him by telling that story mm-hmm. and then as you know as i continued to write there were so many different um i suppose emotions that came up about reconciling this man that i had known as a child and those emotions that were evoked back then with now being an adult and really understanding what was going on in those woods surrounding us that we shared for so many years. So as I got deeper and deeper into the project, it really became, it, it, you know, it ended up being a braided memoir, um, which is my story of growing up next to this man braided with his own Ted's own history and what, really made him. And that's, I think really what interested me as well is understanding or trying to understand at least what created him because of of course in true crime, we're always so interested in what created the monster. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I, I really think that was a big part of this book for me and it wasn't my initial intention, but as I was writing, that's what it evolved into.
0: I have really specific questions about that as well, so I'm really glad to hear you say that because I I definitely wanted to ask you about that. But I wanted to talk about the beginning of the book. Uh, You start off by sharing some certain memories you had of Ted when you were just a little girl. Um, I don't know if those were actual recollections or things that you saw in pictures or both, but can you share one of those memories with the listeners? Like you said, we think of it, these big cases, of like, this person is like this monster, but you knew him as a person. That right there is something that's different. So if you could share one of those memories so they can get a sense of what I'm talking about.
1: Yeah, so there were many memories as a young child in the early eighties that I have of Ted. And even before I could remember, um, he would come over to our home for dinner and I was told he he held me as a baby. Um, but my own personal memory was when uh, Ted had come over to our home. I was around four years old, and I was playing outside by myself, which I did all the time in Lincoln, Montana. And all of a sudden, he a- appeared on, on the mountainside with me. And I was very excited to see him. And in those early years, I I was. He was just, you know, known as our kind of eccentric, strange neighbor, Teddy. And he came over to bring me a gift. And the gift happened to be rocks. And I loved rocks. (laughs) You know, I was just kind of a tomboy and loved collecting things. And specifically, they were painted for me. And so um, I just remember, I think it's so vivid for me because I remember being so excited to see him and so thankful for such a thoughtful, in my mind, my little kid mind.
0: It's so um, interesting that you have such a vivid recall of that, you know, because you were pretty young at the time, you know, was he a person that stood out to you as like, oh, this guy is kind of unusual? Or was it just, oh, yeah, that's just, you know, our neighbor?
1: Uh, To answer that, it really depends on the year for me. So in those early years, he really didn't stand out to me because I just kind of accepted him for for being Ted. As the years progressed, though, and for one, I became more aware of the world around me. And then, of course, his appearance had changed a bit over the years. His behavior had changed a bit over the years. So later on, like early later 80s, early 90s, he definitely did stand out a bit more as a, a very strange neighbor.
0: And that was, that was the question I had. I forgot to look that up, but like how many years approximately did he live there in that area?
1: So he purchased his plot of land, which was 1.4 acre. Him and his brother, David, both purchased it in 1971 from my grandfather, Clifford Gearing senior. Um, and he was there from 1971 to 1996 until his arrest. So it was, it was 25 years wow. being our neighbor, 16 of those, you know, I was present for, because I was born in 1980. Mm-hmm.
0: He was there a lot longer than I think people realize. He must have, I guess, become a familiar sight in the area. If He might have been unusual, but it was familiar. Do you, you know what I mean?
1: Just to set the scene a little bit, um, it's hard to imagine uh, this situation, unless you've, I think, unless you've lived or an ex- or experienced a very rural environment, so the town of Lincoln is only about one thousand residents, and I mean it's teeny tiny. There's, you know, one little blinking stoplight in town. It's a very close knit community, but there are many who choose to live more of an Mm off-grid lifestyle. And um, I think that's pretty prevalent in rural environments. And so just the fact that Ted Kaczynski was living this off-grid lifestyle, you know, with with no electricity or running water in an isolated environment, Mm -hmm. wasn't a red flag on its own. So I mean, everything, looking back, and especially while writing Madman Men in the Woods, everything that Ted was doing was very methodical. He chose a, a place to carry out his war of domestic terror in a place where he would fit in, and, and that was a rural, rural environment in Montana. Yeah,
0: and that's that's exactly what I was going to ask about um, because again, this is a, a part of the book that I thought worked really well was how you juxtapose what was going on with Ted Kaczynski in this cabin in the woods, you know, while he was surrounded with this, you know, serenity and this peaceful place that you describe very well as being a a place of like refuge for you and your family. That you you know you love this area, um, and I'm sure a lot of people that lived in that. Area or have been there. I've said this is just a beautiful place, you know, and and not being able to kind of fathom that somebody could be living in that place and thinking and planning and you know carrying out such violent acts. It just really brings the horror of what he perpetrated to life, I think, and brings up so many more questions of like where his head was at, you know, um, being able to do that. And and that was the question. I think you already answered it. Was about you know about this place where you grew up and and why you thought he picked that place to live and plan the bombings. And like you said, he could be there and kind of fit in, even though he doesn't fit in. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it's is was it that yes. that kind of thing? I mean, we we all know the way that he you know speaks is like he wants to be away from civilization. And he doesn't want to be around people and all of this. But of course, there's gonna be neighbors. I mean, no matter where you go.
2: or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
0: So how did you kind of reconcile those two things? Like what was happening, like you said, just right nearby and and the place that you grew up, which you experienced in a a different way.
1: That was definitely a strong theme in my book while writing because as you said, those woods really nurtured and inspired me and created um me and and added to my resiliency and um independence and i look back on them still as just incredibly beautiful and i'm so fortunate to have been able to live in in an environment like that as a as a child and you know knowing that those woods were creating that cover for him and almost you know, especially with the isolation, the long Montana winters, um, just almost darkening my neighbor even further Mm -hmm. is still a difficult thing to truly, to truly understand. Mm
0: -hmm. It's strange when something happens like that, that it almost changes maybe the way that you remember things or even just the feel of the place because of something. I'm thinking something like 9-11, you know, when it happened um, in New York and going back to the World Trade Center area years after the fact and just, it it just felt so different. Like I couldn't even go like all the way there. I want to remember it the way I remembered it, you know, and it, it really does shake up your experiences, your memories, were you able to, or have you been able to find a, come to some sort of peace with it or are you still working on that?
1: You know, I think I really have been able to kind of compartmentalize it in my mind. Um, You know, the, the woods that I grew up in our family ranch, I still visit and I still think they're incredible places to live. Um, still one of my very favorite places in the world. And when I do come home sometimes, I will still walk by Kaczynski's old plot of land. And that very specific area, as soon as I pass the big granite rocks that were outside of his cabin, um, that feels different. That feels changed to me for obvious reasons, but the surrounding, where I grew up, where I built forts, where I rode my horse and cut down Christmas trees with my dad, those all still feel the same, which I feel very fortunate about. Yeah. And I
0: wanted to ask you if you, um, wanted to talk a little bit about your dad because he is such a he's such a strong presence throughout the book and i think you did a really great like you said you wanted to honor him and i think you did a really, really great job of that cuz you get a sense of a, a little bit of the kind of person he was but and also to how he got involved in this case how did he end up end up as part of this case
1: yeah thank you for saying that um my dad was a huge personality everybody in the Valley knew him and loved him. And he was just that guy who you would, you know, if you needed a hug, he was there. He would talk your ear off (laughs) on most days if he had the opportunity. He would make a friend in a new town in about five minutes. And they left the place like as if they had known each other their whole lives. Mm -hmm. He was just that kind of guy. And he always thought the best of everyone until they gave him reason not to. And of course, especially, you know, given our environment, I think he was even, even more trusting of the people around him. Um, and, you know, it was just months before Ted Kaczynski's arrest that the FBI had approached my dad and initially had told him that they were investigating our neighbor, for some threatening letters that he had written. And they just were there to ask him some questions. And of course, my dad was like, oh, Teddy, he's he's harmless. He's just the, you know, the strange neighbor of the draw. He's lived there forever. Mm-hmm. Happy, happy to, to um, have a conversation. And then as the time progressed between them, FBI agent Max Knoll and my father. They were kind of testing each other at the same time to really decide if they could trust one another. Mm-hmm. And as soon as FBI agent Max Null realized that my dad was someone that he could confide in, he was honest. And he told my dad that they suspected Ted of being the Unabomber. Mm-hmm. And of course, my dad was shocked. Here's this man who they've lived next door to you know my father specifically for 25 years and um you know he he knew that he only survived on about 200 a year he was living off grid it was just a really difficult thing to process but as you know as he really thought about it there were incidents like there were this the sabotage of my own dad's sawmill years ago that started to make sense because Of course, my father knew who the Unabomber essentially was on paper and what he stood for and his railing against technology and industry. So those sorts of things started to make sense. And even just kind of altercations they would have over the years about outsiders coming in and my dad leasing mineral rights and things like that. It was a really, really difficult thing for my dad to process. And and in addition to that the fbi asked him to keep it a secret and so he couldn't he couldn't share this intel with even his family until very close to the day of the arrest
0: and i guess too he would be thinking well i want to keep my family safe but how do i do that when i can't tell them anything
1: right Yeah, I think there were most likely um, some pretty sleepless nights for my dad after he discovered who this neighbor could be Mm -hmm. until the arrest of the Unabomber.
0: So your family was the closest, as far as residences go, to where he was living, correct?
1: Yeah, so there were a few other neighbors out there at the time. There were a couple hunting cabins that were used pretty infrequently, but our families ranch original ranch land um basically surrounded Ted's home. Oh, okay. The mill, our saw our family sawmill was very close to the cabin. And our own home that we lived in was less than a quarter mile away from Kaczynski's home.
0: Oh yeah, super close. So it makes sense that they would, you know, want to talk to your father and say hey, what did you observe or whatever it is they wanted to get his help with. Literally a stone's throw almost right.
1: Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And my, and my dad, since we did own the surrounding property and my dad was a sawyer, he owned a sawmill and he would occasionally do logging or be working on his land around Kaczynski's cabin. They knew that, you know, my father, who they later asked to kind of provide some intel as far as if. Kaczynski's comings and goings, and additionally asked him to videotape the um, cabin and the surrounding property in preparation of the arrest. They knew that my dad, if he was spotted by Kaczynski, wouldn't be out of place. Mm, okay. um, because he was, he was a he was a I standard know. in the area.
0: <laughs> they might have suspected, you know, he could have booby-trapped. You know things around the cabin and things like that, which you know I don't know how how much of that happened, but yeah, it could have still been dangerous for your father.
1: It definitely could have been dangerous, and there were things that I discovered while writing the book of some sabotage, some booby traps that that Kaczynski had set, some things that he had buried around the property and such. Um So my my dad. Obviously did not know those things at the time. Mm. He knew that he was building bombs or that he was most likely building bombs and that he was killing people and that he had weapons. He knew for sure that he had um, a rifle in the cabin and potentially a bomb. And so he was, he was scared, but I think part of what had prepared him was he, he was previously in the military and he knew that he was really the only one that wouldn't be out of place, and he could not see one more person injured or killed by this man.
0: I, I don't know that I've ever heard of your father's contribution before this book. I mean, maybe it's in some of the uh, you know programs and things that came out later on, but I, I know that I've read things about this case, you know, not too long after they happened and I don't remember that. So I think it's really important that, that the story, you know, you told the story. Um, And I'm really glad that I read it for sure. So one thing I did want to talk a little bit about uh, the motivations, because you talk about that a little bit in the book. Now we're all aware that Ted Kaczynski had this um, so-called manifesto and he wrote about his motivations for the bombings. um, You know, like some of the things that you described a little bit ago, but there was some other things that just seemed pretty, I don't know, I want to say typical not or at least not very remarkable motivations for violence. I just did a series about uh, mass shooters and one um, I talked to an author who wrote a book about it. And it seems like there's a lot of the same kind of psychological motivations, which is like they call it collecting grudges. And it all stems from just things, like I said, not that remarkable. He says it's revenge for revenge, right? But you also bring up how he was rejected by somebody that he wanted to date. You know, he's living in isolation. He allows his anger to just fester. But some of it just seems so, I don't know, ordinary, right? And what was your take on like his real motivation for killing? Like, What did you come away with from all of the research you did?
1: So and that was another um, topic for sure while writing this that I was really trying to understand and get to the bottom of like concrete evidence. This is what motivated him. This is why this was happening. Was it truly this battle against industry and technology? Or what was it? What created him and what was motivating him to be so violent and to kill and maim people? and honestly it's convoluted i mean there there's his history and you know there's there's a sequence of events that you know could have created this person there's there's you know potentially um underlying mental illness he was described as being a paranoid schizophrenic so it's it's hard to say what truly what created him other than it just being you know kind of a perfect storm And as far as his motivation goes, that's also, when you really read his journal entries, that's also very confusing Mm -hmm. because he's, you know, he's documenting this war in technology and industry, and he wants to create this revolution and bring down the system. But then also the people that he's targeting it's very indiscriminate. There's there's universities, there's a geneticist, there's an airline he tried to blow up, and there's a computer store owner, owner. There's more seemingly, I suppose, obvious targets, but not all of them were. That in and of itself is just pretty confusing, honestly, to the onlooker. And then you see journal entries where he states that he is doing this not for an altruistic mission really, but because he wants revenge and that's what is motivating him is anger and revenge.
0: And anger and revenge for what? Like that (laughs) that's the second the next part of the question, right? And again It is very complicated because he has these bigger, you know, universal ideas, but then he says, but that's not why I'm doing this. You know, it's, it's just because I want revenge and it's like, okay, but revenge for what? Because it's not revenge for, oh, that, you know, the land's being spoiled or whatever. It's revenge for that woman didn't want to date me. You know, I mean, that that's kind of what I came away with, at least for a, a portion of it. It's really odd. But like you said, you know, there's also this uh, element of, of mental illness. And one of the things I think where you see this, especially for him, was in relationship with people. He had a really difficult time, you know, in, in having relationships with people in any real, you know, deep way, I guess. And that was one of the things that I was always interested in when I read about this case is in his early years, because as some, you know, that, that know this case may know, uh, one of the things that we learn about him is that he was separated from his his mother, his parents, when he was an infant due to an illness, and he was hospitalized. But it wasn't like months or something, it was days or something, I believe. But people sometimes point the finger at this incident, and it's like an aha moment. Like, oh, that's what happened to him, right? Like, it really means everything. But you corresponded with his brother, and you got some information firsthand of what his life was like in the family, then and and through his life, and it appears that at least this is the sense I got that while is of course you know no family is perfect, his childhood and his relationships with his family members also seem pretty typical. Also, again, unremarkable for the most part, right? Is this how you also read read it, and or was there something that you kind of saw in all of? that, like the upbringing that maybe said, well, okay, I can see where maybe this played a a role in, you know, whatever he decided to become.
1: You know, that was definitely a journey for me and really important to me to, to tell this part of the narrative that I wasn't present for. And so that is definitely why I wanted to reach out to David Kaczynski and um, find out more about what it was like growing up for Ted and with Ted. And I do want to touch on that um, experience at nine months. You're right, it was days, but it also did seem to create some change in him. And at nine months, he was separated from his parents because of a severe case of hives. He was hospitalized. And his mother did write in her own journals that before he was placed in the hospital. He was meeting milestones. He was a happy, bouncy baby boy. And afterwards, he did have more of an institutional look. And she even says something like he was a dead lump emotionally for quite some time after he came home. Um, So, you know, who knows? That could have definitely had some effect on his ability to develop close relationships going forward. And I will say that, When his mother was writing to him, even when Ted was an adult and he was in the little cabin next to ours, she would hearken back to that experience and say, like, I think this is why you hate us so much because of this separation. So she was always kind of trying to justify his behavior with that specific incident. Mm -hmm. But, you know, other than his advancement in school and not really... Being able to relate to his peers, um, his childhood did seem very ordinary mm-hmm. and typical. They, you know, they were spending time together as a family, going camping. His father would teach them the boys about nature, and they played instruments together and were very supportive. Of course, academically, so it, it didn't seem completely out of the ordinary or horribly traumatic, honestly. Mm. And so, yeah, you're always looking for like, what's that one thing? Is there one thing we can point to that really turned his life around? And it really, there isn't in this specific case and in my own investigation and research, there isn't just one thing. There's a few things that you could say like, oh, well, that could have added to him becoming the person that he did but who can really say why he why he became the unabomber and could justify killing and maiming people i mean obviously in my mind there was mental illness and then multiple events throughout his childhood that just kind of pushed him maybe into more isolation and then also really kind of developing these different chasms in his in his own mind mm-hmm.
0: One of the things that I was thinking as I was reading, um, you you put in some exchanges you had with David Kaczynski with his brother, and as we know, he was also instrumental in in uh, you know identifying his brother as a Unabomber. So, I've always found that pretty interesting. And also, the exchanges you had with him, what I I don't know what kind I kind of gleaned from that, I guess, is that they are willing to talk about what happened very honestly about, you know, their, their ideas about him and talk about their family life where you see things when there's a person who's done a crime, you know, some kind of crime where people are talking about this and they go to the family and the family just shuts, shuts everybody out. They're like, we're not talking about this. This is not, it's nothing they have to do, you know? Um, But especially with David Kaczynski, it seems like he's very, open and honest about it. And to me, that kind of signals that maybe it wasn't, like you said, it it was pretty ordinary. Like they're still trying to figure it out because if they knew there was some deep, dark secret in the family, you know, I don't know that they would be so forthcoming. At least that was just a thought that came to mind as I read your book.
1: I agree with you. And honestly, it, it was um, a difficult decision for me to go to David really to try to understand what the childhood was like and to get more information because it's a wound that I didn't really want um, to open for him again. But I also put myself in that position for a moment and thought, you know, if my own family was in the spotlight and somebody else was writing about it, I would want to have input. And so that's kind of what guided me. And he was, he was so forthcoming with, with their history together and his own emotion around it. He was an, an incredible supporter of the book and was so thankful to me for really trying to connect and really try to understand even his his own mother, Wanda, and that experience that she must have, that she had with Ted and those feelings that um, she had as well when she had to put her baby in the hospital and those types of things that are mentioned, of course, in uh, Ted Kaczynski's history, but I I really wanted to show that side of, of the story and kind of their vulnerability
0: yeah, they seem like pretty incredible people, to be honest, and the things that I've read read about them. That's really amazing that they were, you know, wanting to cooperate even at this late date and still try to, I guess understand as well some of some yes. things themselves, which you know, I'm sure it's a something that will just continue forever because it's something that really is is inexplainable, really. You know, it really is. We do our best, especially those that uh, you know will read about these things or or listen to. Interviews like this to see if, can we understand this at all? But it really is, it really is inexplainable. Like you just can't. You're never going to really know, like you said, uh, there's all these different things that that went into creating this situation and creating what he decided to do. And we will never know all, all of those. So he had such an animosity towards his family, you know, which seemed really out of proportion to just about. Anything does David have any ideas about why that was, or I mean, it's got to be so hurtful first of all, if they really it seems they really do love him, the letters and things he he wrote that you know I think David shared with you or you saw in the FBI you know files or something was you know just really ugly and hateful, like he just was basically saying, You know, get out of my life, I don't need you,
1: yeah, and they are very hurtful and I think that really speaks to the type of person that David is because even, even reading those, they were hard for me to read what he would say to his family. It was horrible. But even after that, um, you know, David still hopes that his brother will find healing in prison and he thinks about it all of the time. So again, I think that just really speaks to the, the type of person that David is. But they, they definitely went through a really horrible experience, you know, with Ted, not only through the years of them being pushed away and not knowing what was going on with, you know, their brother and son, but then, of course, having to face that he was potentially the Unabomber and then being faced with turning him into the FBI. I mean, what they have been through as a family and then... How they are now, and so open to discussing it, I think is incredible.
0: Yes, it definitely is. I mean, yeah, it's amazing uh, strength. I can't imagine. I can't imagine what that would be like, and I'm sure none of us can. But yeah, just uh, it really just shows char- the character that they have as as people. And I don't want to give away <laughs> because I want people to get your book. So I don't want to give away what happens at the end. But I do want to have you talk a little bit about you you decided to write to him. And really, all I wanted you to uh, let us know is like what what went into the decision, What was it that you hoped, maybe or maybe you didn't hope, maybe you just decided to do it, um, by writing to him while he was in prison.
1: I have always wanted to write to Ted since he was arrested in 96. I've always wanted to write a letter really from my, I think my own personal closure and just kind of acknowledging the fact that he fooled us for a long time mm-hmm. and we were all completely shocked. And for some reason, for p- my own personal reason, I wanted to always communicate that and so that was that was something that had always kind of motivated me but then while writing the book I, fi- I decided I finally did want to write that letter and honestly it was that paired with the fact that I was still hoping to find like some kernel of good in this and to to hear from from him personally what his motivations were and to really answer, those questions that I still had that I was searching for while writing this book. And so just, it was kind of, you know, a combination of those things that inspired me to finally sit down and and write to him.
0: Yeah. And like I said, I don't, I don't want to give it away because people need to read the book. <laughs> They're going to be like, oh man, <laughs> you know, but no, you need to read it because there is, there's so much more in there. There's so much more information. And it's really interesting because like I said, I, I just like that. It's from a completely different angle, and I think people are going to really get a lot, even if they think they know about, you know, Ted Kaczynski or the Unabomber case or whatever. I, I guarantee you there's things they, they've they not heard before. So I highly recommend that my listeners check it out if they're interested in this case. I found it really fascinating. I really enjoyed reading it, too. I thought it was written really well, and I, I could picture, like, where you grew up. And, and I love that when you can kind of get into this the story in that way where you're like oh man that must have been a really beautiful place to grow up but it had to be so weird to find out this was going on in your backyard so definitely let uh, our listeners know how they can get a hold of a copy of your book a uh, madman in the woods
1: So you can purchase Mad Men in the Woods anywhere, really, you purchase your books. You can buy it on Amazon, IndieBound, Bookshop.org, Barnes and Noble, Target, Walmart. Um, You can request it at your library or basically any bookstore you go into. If they don't have it, they'll order it for you.
0: (laughs) Okay, cool. So that's that's awesome. But I I definitely recommend people pick this up and and read it. I think you're really going to enjoy it. So Uh, Once again, thank you so much, Jamie, for coming on the show. I really, really enjoyed the conversation.
1: Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it as well. Once again, I'd like to thank
0: my guest, Jamie Gehring, for coming on the show and sharing her insights into this fascinating case. There is so much more to unpack about Ted Kaczynski, his motivations, life history, and crimes. And you can find out more in her book, Madman in the Woods. I've included a link in the show notes or look for it in your favorite bookstore. Until next time, be good to one another.